We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host. Welcome to the Rock Art Podcast. It's episode 47 with Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Today we are blessed to have unique gentleman in the social cultural anthropology world, Stephen O'Neill, who's uh, one of the world's experts. He's a student of the culture of the Hashiman or Juaneño people who live around the mission San Juan Capistrano. And he's going to take us on a journey of about 50 years of his work and research and bring us fast forward to an understanding of how he discovers information about the prehistoric lifeways and rock art. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And this is episode number 47 of the Rock Art Podcast. Can you imagine? And we're blessed and uh, gifted with an old pal, an old friend of mine, a colleague. His name is Stephen O'Neill. And Stephen uh, hails from, I would say, Southern California of sorts, almost uh, coastal California. Stephen is a, a cultural anthropologist and social anthropologist come archaeologist who has had a tremendous amount of experience and expertise working with a group called the Gabrielenia or better self-avowed the Hashiman, the native people that lived in and around the uh, mission San Juan Capistrano. Uh, Stephen has worked with uh, history, prehistory, archaeology, ethnology, ethnogeography, and many other areas of indigenous California native knowledge. 
Stephen, are you there with us? Hello, Alan. Yes, I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, it's a blessing to have you. I know we've spoken about doing this for quite a while, and and the opportunity was met with preparation. <laughs> and, and here we are. No, no preparation whatsoever. No preparation whatsoever. Except, except for our lifetime of doing this work. Right. We're, we're flying by the seat of our pants, and and we're happy to do so. The first segment, what I normally ask, and this is an open-ended question, I ask uh, uh, many individuals from many walks of life who are involved with the study of indigenous people. How the heck do you get involved with any of this, the field of anthropology, archaeology, uh, native indigenous studies, and do some uh, reflection and talk about uh, what fuels your passion and interest in the study of native culture? Well, that partly stems from the fact that actually for someone born, I will let you know right off the bat, 1952, to at that point be a third generation Californian was somewhat unusual. Myself, my mother, and my grandmother were all born in Pasadena. And we came to the Costa Mesa, Orange County coastal area when I was very young. Grew up here in Orange County when it was still largely cattle, bean fields, and orange groves. And I saw that change in my lifetime. I was very interested in local history all through high school. And then my the end of my senior year in high school, there was an experimental class in what was called anthropology. And when I took that and saw what it was about, I just knew right there that that was what I was most interested in. Anthropology, social anthropology can be history and everything else in the world. So that became my major as soon as I got to college. My interest in the history of Orange County soon led me to realize that the written history of Orange County goes back then about 200 years. People have been in Orange County for about 12,000 years. So it didn't take much thought to realize if I really wanted to know this area, what I who I should be looking at and studying are the local native people. My professors at college were telling me that they weren't here anymore, that the native people of Orange County and Southern California were just gone. So that was discouraging at first, taking their, my professor's word for it. I tried to do as much reading on this as I could. And at the time, I became involved with the Pacific Coast Archaeological Society, which is centered in Orange County, and got to um, participate in a number of excavations of prehistoric sites and historic sites in the area. And even though my interest was cultural anthropology, I really didn't study archaeology at Orange Coast College and then later Cal State Long Beach, I soon found that I was getting more practical experience in field archaeology than my fellow students who were specializing in that just because of the opportunities with the uh, society. And so I found that when I graduated, there really weren't social anthropology clubs, but there was the archaeology society. And so I had that experience and was able to, uh, within a, a year of graduation, start working on surveys and excavations throughout Southern California. I had also had the opportunity to attend a PCAS meeting 
where, remember, you know, this was the late 1970s, and the California Environmental Quality Act was still being felt out. You know, what does it mean? How does it get implemented? And the County of Orange had no personnel, staff in the planning department that really knew how to deal with cultural resource investigations or evaluate reports that were coming in. So they asked the Archaeological Society, PCAS, with their, at that point, almost 20 years of experience, to help them with those evaluations as development projects produced environmental impact reports. I happened to attend one of those meetings almost at random, and that happened to be a meeting at which members of the Wanania Band of Mission Indians attended and stating to the Archaeological Society as the proxy for the county that they wanted to become involved in reviewing archaeological reports as, of course, it dealt with their ancestors. That's how I came to realize that my professors were wrong. Here were members of the Wanango tribe, alive and well and active in, in the community. So I'd become aware of members in the San Juan Capistrano community and started doing my term papers at while well, I was still at Long Beach by going down the San Juan Capistrano and interviewing members of the Wanganyo community about different aspects of their culture. So what year was that when you began doing those term papers, Stephen? Uh, the, the first time I went down the Capistrano and met people was in 1978. Oh, my word. So and you're talking about... members of the, the Lobo family. Right. So that was a good... I was almost, what, 50 years ago. Is that right? Yes, it was. Oh, my word. I had no idea. Um, that Lobo family became, uh, you know, very... I was very close to them for, for many years, getting to know especially uh, the matriarch, um, Evelyn, and spending time at their home, attending barbecues in town, the um, Swallows Parade, which was uh, very much uh, an activity that the tribe was involved with along with mm -hmm. the rest of the town. And um, I'm still in touch with members of the Lobo family to this day. That's wonderful. Uh, that's how I got started in this. So uh, when did you uh, start working with the mission records and move into uh, getting a graduate degree? Well, those were two topics that were very, very separated in time. Okay. I became interested in the, they're actually the sacramental registers of the mission. Mission San Juan Capistrano and the other 20 missions in California were, of course, religious establishments of the Franciscan order of the Roman Catholic Church. And they were part of the colonizing effort of the Spanish Empire to um, come into California and establish it as a province of New Spain. There were almost as many, well, not quite as many missionaries as there were soldiers, but there were eventually 21 missions and only four presidios, which gives you an idea of the influence that the crown expected the missions to have on bringing the acculturating the Native American people here to being part of Spain. The missionaries, of course, have the sacraments. And that's part of how they bring um, converts into the fold of the church. 
these sacraments, the primary ones are baptism, marriage, and the burial records. Each of these sacraments provides or results in a, a record of that individual. And if you, and they're meticulous at keeping track of these records. Other people before me had, long before me, had started work on this, such as Dr. John Johnson and Chester King, um, Randy Milliken here in California. And I soon heard about this work and realized that it was a way to get information as to who, what, where, and when, in terms of the Native people, starting in at Capistrano, 1776, and up through the 1830s, and even to the present day, the mission is still there keeping track of these uh, sacraments. And through learning how these other scholars use them, I started doing my own accounting. At the time, 1980 or so, the rector at the mission church allowed me to use the original records, which were right there in the rectory of the, of the mission. That must have been rather amazing, wasn't it? It was. And um, you didn't have to use cotton gloves back then either. Uh, we should have been, but it just wasn't that sophisticated yet. What was it like actually touching those original records and looking at the signatures and the information? That must have been rather striking and sort of a, an amazing sort of freeze frame. Well, of course, it was exciting, you know, to use these books that had been, actually, they were prepared by Father Unipro Serra in July 1776. That's amazing. He wrote the introductory pages as to, you know, the mission that this was about, the, the found, document on the founding of the mission, and then going forward from there as the resident priest mm. used them to uh, uh, record the baptisms and so on of the Indians that they were bringing into the mission. Sure. But what this mission register research allows is, well, realize that when a priest baptized a member of the Wanenyo or Hachimam tribe, what he's recording about that person's name, their indigenous name, the village that they are from, their age on that date, and usually a name of a relative, most often their father, also you know, their indigenous name. That is something he is recording from that person on that day. It is primary information. And we were not to get any further primary information until the field of anthropology was developed in the around the turn of the last century and people went out and started doing field work. Right. No one asked them questions in between those those times. Right. But the baptism, the subsequent marriage of that person to another person, again with their indigenous name of both husband and wife and the mm -hmm. date. And reference back to their baptism so you know who it is and their other relatives. And then moving onward, you have the baptism of that couple's children, which again repeats their parents' names. Right. And so it's reinforcing that, that of what that information is. 
sometimes slightly variant spellings, as the priest, not used to the Indian language, is picking up another, you know, trying to render it in Spanish, right. Latin, Castilian, Basque, whatever language that priest grew up with. Did they document the village name as well? I guess that was something that I... Oh, that yes. I um, yeah. Constantly. Okay. The, the village name is always given, at least in the, the initial baptism. Well, that's fast, fascinating. So is the name of the person's father. Usually, you know, Spain was is a very patriarchal society, so usually they will mention if the mother was still alive or not, but not her name. Unless the father was dead, in which case they will give the traditional name of the mother. Well, it looks like we've used up our first segment, and and I think we'll have to continue this discussion on the (laughs) flip-flop. See you later, gang. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart you've worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome back, uh, all you podcast listeners. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And we are blessed to have Stephen O'Neill with us, who's talking about his experiences with cultural and social anthropology, the uh, native California people, the Juaneño, they're also called self-avowed Ahashaman, around the uh, Mission San Juan Capistrano area. Stephen. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for having me back. Oh, yeah. It's an an honor and a blessing. And uh, I know we were... Instead of getting to the meat of the matter in the last, the last segment, uh, please continue. Well, as we were talking about, to try to reconstruct many of the, the social aspects of the Ahachimam culture you know, from traditional times, uh, we are lucky to have the Sacramento Registers located at Mission San Juan Capistrano and of course, we're not discussing at this point what the uh, the actual physical and cultural effects of the mission on the individuals and society they have to them. That's a whole other topic. The, the tragedy of the 
bare survival of the individuals and the society. But it was a lack of other information, their traditional way of life. These registers are invaluable in helping reconstruct what Ashram society was like um, at the contact period, 1770s through the early 1800s. Now, I was working with these uh, this information starting in the early 1980s, partly to put together place name maps, also to help with background information on archaeological excavations that were conducted at village sites that we know existed into the contact period, into the time the Europeans arrived here. And so that we could put together a little information on um, how many people had been there, what their social contacts were with other villages, that sort of thing. So this information from the Sacramento, Re Sacramento registers from the missions gives you valuable contextual data to figure out some of the demographics, some of the relationships, and other details. Am I correct? Yes. Once you gather all the register information, and I recorded some 4,500 baptisms from 1776 through 1840, and then all the subsequent marriage entries and then burial entries for those 4,500 people. About 1,200 of those were people who were living a traditional way of life, people from the villages, adults, uh, their children, as they were living at the Ahatsuan villages. The other 2,500 or so were the subsequent children of those neophytes at the mission. But what that allows you to do is once you gather all of that information and have it available at one time, you can go back and basically reconstruct the demographics at any given village. And that's what my thesis was uh, about 20 some years later. I identified everyone from the same village. So that tells you the size of the village? Yes. Yeah. So that gives you an indication of the number of people living there and uh, perhaps their ages and, and other important information about the society, does it not? Yes. The, the technique is you then take all the information that you have at one time and you go back and you group together everyone who came from the same village then you have to kind of pick an arbitrary date. Because remember, people are being baptized and brought into the mission sometimes over a five or 15-year period. Mm -hmm. And you get their ages based on the date that they were baptized. I see. So you have to kind of pick an arbitrary date and adjust their ages back and forth to see who was alive and what their ages were at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then also separate them by male and female. Mm -hmm. And so you then can get a population curve, bell curve, as to the age, the, the ages of people at a given time. Uh, I, I admit that one of the things I found that was uh, somewhat surprising was the longevity of people 
living in a complex hunter-gatherer society. This was not a bad life. They took care of themselves and supported themselves very well. Every village had someone in their 50s. Many villages had someone in their 70s. And it was a normal spread of male and female, almost 50-50. The other thing that this allows you to do, this information, is that the priest at the missions did try to keep indigenous marriages together. They found out who was married to each other in the traditional life, and they remarried them in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. We also sometimes didn't always have a direct information on who was married to who, but in the baptism of children, naming their parents, we realized who were the, the parents of multiple children and realized that you know this represented marriages as well. What this allowed us to do is reconstruct the marriage network from village to village. Who at village A were marrying among villages B, C, D, and E and put together a network. And you often see multiple marriages between the same villages. You would also see the marriages of elites. Yes. Chiefs and the children of chiefs often marrying the children, male and female, of the chiefs of other villages, maintaining that social hierarchy. So that was fascinating. What were some of the most startling and surprising discoveries you've made working with the sacramental registries? Well, that was one of them. It was nice to see what little was known about the traditional life mm -hmm. being reinforced or confirmed by the mission register showing these networks mm -hmm. uh, between elite families, one village from the other. It also confirmed there was not an active moiety system, you know, where some of the clans belong to one organization and the other rest of the clans belong to another, you know, wherein people from the same moiety cannot marry one another. These moiety systems are seen among the Kuia and the Serrano to the east, people who are related culturally and linguistically to the Hachiman. And so for the Wanenya, the Hachiman, they did not have that kind of system? No, because you can see in the sacramental registers that involve the Serrano, mm -hmm. people marry from very distinct villages, one to the other, and not among themselves. I see. Whereas among the Hachiman, people from any village which would represent a clan, could marry people from any other village. There was no distinction. No distinction. Gotcha. And so while there were clans, and they did have legends that speak of moiety system. I see. Like basically, coyote versus wildcat mm -hmm. interaction shows up in some of the legends. There was not a socially or politically active moiety system among them as demonstrated by the broad marriage patterns that, that show up. What, is, what was the perceived value from the Native viewpoint of your research? Was there uh, spin-offs or benefits in terms of sharing this information, the heritage values to the Ahashiman people? Oh, yes. I, I was always uh, careful to do that. Maybe tell us some stories. Well, one of the things that I was... 
I was certain to do was that there was a organization in town started in the early 1980s called the Capistrano Indian Council. Mm -hmm. And this came about through educational programs in the Capistrano Unified School District that needed to have community input. And so the Indian Council was started to provide that input. But it soon grew to a social and cultural organization. And in the late 1990s, I was able to join that um, organization. It was open to outside people. And so whenever I was working on a project, I would give a presentation to the Indian Council on uh, that project and keeping them informed of what I was working on and asking for their input to do that. I also developed a relationship with the Wanania Band of Mission Indians Tribal Council and their chairman, uh, David Velardes, mm -hmm. and would work with him on projects that I was doing, letting him know what was going on, sometimes even giving presentations to the Tribal Council. It, it was very important to have a, a good working relationship with the, the, the tribe itself. I also always maintain contact with that local family. They were, you know, have always been very prominent in the community. What did they find most valuable about the work that you've done? Is there any sort of inspirational stories or discoveries or information that really was a blessing to the, to the Native people? Well, there was no one big thing. Okay. It, it had to do with um, relationships over the past 40-some years. Mm -hmm. Much of my research was done out of uh, personal interest and anthropological interest. Most of it did not stem from uh, cultural resource management projects. Yeah. And therefore, it kind of had to do with what my interests were. Mm -hmm. But it also had to do with realizing that there was um, still information that was within members, living members of the tribe that could well be lost within the next generation or so. Mm -hmm. There was a big influx of anthropological fieldwork back around 1900 and then again in the 1930s. But this was then stored away in academic journals and notes stored in the Smithsonian. And tribal members, to a great extent, didn't realize where this information was or that it even existed at that point, you know, in the 1970s and 80s. Okay. And what did you do about that? Yeah, these were interviews with their grandparents, their great aunt, and that information didn't always get passed along to them, the information that these interviews had been done. Steve, were you able to help them get that information? Yes. You know, so doing my research, I went to those sources, the journals and the Smithsonian, and to a degree, I was able to bring that information back to them, let them know about these journals, make copies of it, um, with other colleagues such as Dr. Lil Bean and some others who were working with the Senior people. Our investigations into the Her John Harrington notes at the Smithsonian, we brought that information back to the tribes you know, currently. Fantastic. Well, we're, we're about out of time for the second segment <laughs> and we've just touched the high points but i think in this third third segment we'll get to something uh even rather uh perhaps uh, directly of interest to perhaps those that are 
tickled by the the pictures on stones. Certainly. Catch you on the flip-flop, gang. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel on uh, episode 47 of the Rock Art Podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network with our guest scholar, Stephen O'Neill. So Stephen, you're giving us a tremendous sort of journey with respect to your work with the sacramental information from the missions and your interaction with the native Huaneño, self-identified uh, Ahashaman people. And when does that segue over to the archaeological world of rock art? Well, it, it does in, in several ways. Though I am going to ask that uh, you, you bear with me for one more minute sure. on the, the tribe itself. Please. I've been, we've been talking about the Ahashaman of the past and the, the, the traditional, you know, some of the aspects of the traditional way of life. I just want to remind people that the Hatchimum are still here. They're still a vital part of the history and current life of Orange County in Southern California. Uh, a lot of people forget that about the Native American people here. Though I'm sure your podcast and your own work with the people in the Owens Valley and Tehachapi area, you know, will discuss that from time to time. Because you work with the current people as well. One comment, one phrase I hear from the people in Capistrano a lot is, we are still here, which is something we unfortunately have to remind many people of uh, from time to time. I'm just going to say that two years ago, the Orange County Public Library System was able to receive a California Humanities-funded grant to interview 19 members of the Ahashimun tribe on what is it that's important to you? What is it to be an Ahashimun in the 21st century? And we worked to get a diverse set of viewpoints, men and women, elders, younger people, people who still live within sight of the Mission San Juan Capistrano and those who have moved away to the um, other parts of Orange County and beyond to Los Angeles. And anyone interested in knowing about the Hasselman community today and what their interests and concerns are, you can go to the OC Public Library website and look up Juaneño and the Hatchimum and listen to those videotape interviews. So 
because that plug is over. Let's go on to Lockhart. I think that's absolutely fab- fabulous, and congratulations on being part and parcel of such an important project, Steve. That's quite a an important benchmark. It's a blessing, and it's nice to see an homage and an acknowledgement of the importance of Native culture, Native people, their ancestry, and their heritage. Now, of course, there is the subject of rock art, <laughs> which is always fun. Uh, I made it a point early on that I was not going to study rock art of the local people. I was just going to enjoy it. Uh-huh. But back in 1980, when the Native American Heritage Commission in California State um, Agency was just getting started, they wanted to know about, from the tribes themselves, what were important sites to them that they wanted to be put onto a register. And at the time, my work with uh, Chairman David Bellardi's, I was going to gather information on the known rock art sites within their traditional territory. Mm-hmm. And um, I worked with members of the Cleveland National Forest, the Tribuco District that is here in Orange County and parts of Riverside County as well, mm-hmm. to work with them. To What did they know about the rock art up in the mountains? Mm-hmm. And we spent a wonderful weekend visiting eight sites and getting the records. One thing I learned right off the bat is that the rock art of the tribe was confined just to those mountain area, that mountain area in the Santa Ana Mountain, even though that's probably only a tenth of the territory, because that was the only place where there were granite boulders suitable for to take the paint, to take the pigment. There is the San Joaquin Hills along the coast, but that's all sandstone and erodes away very fast and was not very suitable. So the sites that still exist are those in the mountains. And there is a combination of petroglyphs and pictographs. The uh, petroglyphs are predominantly copules, you know, the semicircular hollowed out cups carved into rocks. There is the painting, the pictographs, which are part of the San Luis Rey style and um, seen throughout coastal Southern California. San Luis Rey is the mission to the south of Capistrano. And the Luisano Indians associated with that mission are part of the same tribe as the Juanano Hatchimum. The Hatchimum are a northern branch of that same group with a slight dialect difference. The rock art style is the same. It is overwhelmingly red pigment. Mm-hmm. Very, very little um, other color mixed in. And for decades from the beginning, it was described as a abstract rectilinear. Mm-hmm. It was all geometric forms, mm-hmm. chevrons, dots, rarely a, a stick figure, cross hatching, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Okay. And which meant it was so abstract that no one, you know, could try to interpret it. Okay. Uh, which was fine with me because, as I said, my intent was not to study it. No. Yeah, I, I want to know where it is. But um, to just go into the mountains every once in a while and enjoy it. Okay. I did that with one site in particular. 
up in the Santa Ana Mountains. It's the largest panel with um, about 20 different segments to it. Mm -hmm. And I would just go up once a year and just sit there for a day and just revel in looking at it. After doing that for 13 years, however, my mind started to make connections. And so I started looking back at the ethnographies, uh, looking at what was known about the ceremonial regalia of the Ahachimam and related Luisenio and even the related Korea people. Reading over and over the, the few texts on the religion, finding that every time I read it, I see something else that I'd missed the last time. And eventually came to realize that some of what looked like abstract elements were actually representations of ceremonial objects. Some of these glyphs were actually representations of feathers. Sometimes they were a representation of, a, of the sand paintings that were used in many of the, uh, the ceremonies. They were representations of individual feathers, but also bands of feathers. And bands of feathers were used to um, transform a brush structure into a ceremonial structure. They sacralized it. And um, going back, I realized that at least two of these rock art sites had a number of these ritual and ceremonial objects being represented. So it is not entirely abstract. The interpretation as to the meaning, that depends on how you feel we understand the traditional religion. There is precious little information to, to go on. But it is intimately connected with the late period, contact period, religious life of the Hatchimum. Was there any relationship to the, um, you know, the famous Chinichnich stories and, and cosmology that you saw with the rock art or no? Yeah, the, the, the Chinichinich religion does have deep ties to the older traditional religion. There's an integration of the recent stories mm -hmm. associated with the, the figure of Chinichinich himself with the older origin stories of the Luisenio and Hatchelon tribe dealing with the Sky Father and Earth Mother, Tamayawut, and the first people born of her. You know, they're the ones that set the earth and plants and animals and people in motion. Uh, Chinichinich came much later and set a, uh, a moral tone for society. And his teachings got integrated into the older ceremonials that came about from the, uh, the first people born of Mother Earth. So what shows up in the rock art, I feel, has more to do with that larger, deeper religion. The stories of Chinichinich don't seem to be represented necessarily in, in the rock art. What would that older, deeper stratum be akin to in terms of the creation stories? Are there such stories that can be shared or at least outlined for our listeners? Well, the, the stories that we are aware of 
are actually recorded by a Franciscan missionary, Geronimo Boscano, back in the 1810s and 1820s. Mm-hmm. He did very much what could be record, regarded as a ethnography of the people at Mission San Juan Capistrano. He was apparently fluent in their language. Mm-hmm. Um, he was at Mission San Luis Rey among the Luisano and among mm-hmm. the Hatchmum for 20-some years. Wow. Wrote several drafts of his book on the historical relation of the Indians of this mission, which, when published, was called, titled Chinichinich in its English translation in the 1840s. Mm-hmm. He recorded actually two creation story versions, uh, one based from clans near the coast and one based from clans further inland. And these can be joined with another four or five creation stories um, recorded among the Luisania back around 1900, mm-hmm. you know, showing that each clan had its own version, um, not in disagreement with one another, but more enhancing one another. And what's the general outline of that creation story? Well, it's um, it's fairly abstract. Okay. It is what appears in the universe at first is not a god or a totem animal. It is abstract potentiality. Okay. It is a gray mist that seems to be changing within itself about mm-hmm. to produce something and then contracts. Another fog appears again. Fog just in the sense that it's gray and abstract. And there is a, um, a potentiality within it, which at some point eventually resolves itself into male darkness and female lightness, sky and earth, which unite to produce children, which are the, the first people of Earth. And um, these are the Kamalam, who then go on to become the stars and the mountains and everything that we see about us, plus much, much more that we don't see anymore. And at one point, then one of them dies, which brings death to, to everything. There was no death until this one person dies. And it was Mokai. Well, with about a minute remaining, what would you, what would you, what's, what's the takeaway from your decades of study and intimate connections with the one in you people? What would you like our audience to know? That their society was as rich and complex as any that you will find among the ethnographic literature. It is our loss that no one asked them to um, tell their stories until a hundred years after the cataclysm of European genocide, not purposeful physical genocide, but the result of the disease was just the same, wiping out entire families, killing off elders before they could pass on the information to the children. What's the positive takeaway? Sort of fast forward to 2021. 20, 20, we know that that society was as complex as a any that could be, that the people are still here. And they're here. That um, they are reconstituting their society. 
they are creating new songs in their language to sing at new ceremonies. How exciting. Which they are doing. We're so grateful that um, that this is what's being done as um, they have their own uh, tribal scholars working to bring their society and culture back to life. Well, that's all all the time we have. Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend an hour with you and have you, you know, bring me, bring me full circle on the journey that you have with the native people of the mission San Juan Capistrano. I am so appreciative for your sharing that with our, yeah, it's been wonderful. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And we encourage people to go to San Juan Capistrano and go to the Tribal Interpretive Center. Fantastic. See this for yourself. Thank you, Stephen. God bless. See you, see you next week, gang. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Fro.